Well, welcome to the inauguration of yet another learned society, the Friends of the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science. The centre has been going for 20 years or so, and it is one of the most vigorous and active and forward-looking research centres in the London School of Economics, which, as you all know, is preeminent in its field. So, um, our aim is to study all sorts of aspects of social and public affairs where philosophy has some, rum, some role to play. And of course we're very fortunate in having Professor Grayling to talk to us in a few minutes, as he is the man who has perhaps most, uh, most uh, uh, interestingly applied philosophy to public affairs. Well, I think I should say a word or two about what the Center of Philosophy of Natural and Social Science is and does. Well, we have a number of well-founded, long-running uh, international research programs, one of which has recently been uh, set up between here and San Diego in uh, University of California, which we call the, the, the Orders Project. It's looking at the world in terms of man's order, nature's order, and God's order, and seeing how these interact in our, in our present circumstances and the way we live our lives. Then we have a project called Beyond Rationality, which is linked with universities in the United States and on the continent of Europe, in which we're looking at different ways in which accusations of, you must have been mad to do that, or the bankers, how could they be so stupid as to lend all that money? Or jihadists, how could they sacrifice their lives for a cause? And so on. Beyond rationality. Then we have another project, perhaps germane to the political situation here at, at the moment, on voting procedures and voting practices and voting power. Then we have one in which we look at the way in which scientific evidence of various sorts appears in educational philosophy, in the way uh, medicine develops, in the ethos we have for managing sickness and health. We have another group interested in decision making, another one which is concerned with Darwin, developing its program called Darwin at the LSE, developing public knowledge of Darwin's <coughs> achievements and the climate change program, which of course is also relevant to our days. And a very vigorous visitors program. Now you might well ask, with all this going on, why are we pushing out the begging bowl? Well the answer is quite simple, that uh, people who give grants don't necessarily understand the necessity for the day-to-day -day humdrum activities of a centre in which they're going to be housed and in which we're going to find telephone lines, computer time, stop the roof leaking, all that kind of thing, which isn't, which isn't, uh, which isn't uh, uh, allowed for in the in grant. So we do need day-to-day -day running. At the same time, we're also anxious to bring more and more people from outside the London School of Economics itself into our activities. So the idea of the friends these people will join, be, become a friend, 
uh, with a certain financial uh, contribution. And there'll be all kinds of goodies which are on the brochure, annual lectures, annual dinners, and things, things of that sort. And by this means we hope that we will be able to strengthen our ac activities and bring more and more people into the, into the school. Now it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Anthony Grayling from Birkbeck College in, in London. I judge by the size of the crowd that he's not unknown to you. And he is one of those whose uh, witty and wise commentaries on public affairs, particularly in the, in the Times and The Guardian and, and other places, have entertained us and instructed us for many years. So, Professor Grady. Thank you very much indeed. It's a great pleasure and uh, an even greater honour to be asked to give the inaugural address at the founding of the society. Um, the centre is itself uh, an exemplification of philosophical endeavour in the public square, introducing philosophical styles of thought and ideas and rigour into wide variety of uh, projects. And uh, I think Rom and his colleagues in the centre are every bit as, as uh, qualified as anybody else in this world of ours to talk about the role that philosophy and philosophers have in these different conversations that society must have with itself if it is to be rational and well-ordered. Well, um, it's been a, an encouraging phenomenon, I think, in the last couple of decades at least, to see that the kinds of contributions that philosophers can make to public debate has been more and more recognized. Um, some of you present here may remember that back in the 1950s, the third program, as it was then known, very occasionally had extremely earnest discussions between Isaiah Berlin and Peter Strawson and, and various others. There's one little contribution that the third program thought that it would make uh, to culture on the Rethian principle that if you drag the horses to water, some of them might drink. Um, but the experiment was, was stopped after a little while because uh, Isaiah Berlin and P.F. Strawson and others who contributed to that uh, thought that they were in their seminar room in their colleges in Oxford and were very uncompromising when they came to the audiences for the third program, which were either much more advanced in those days than they are these days, or, and probably more likely, I uh, hadn't a clue what was going on. Uh, I've been told by somebody in the BBC that people rather like programmes where they don't really understand what's going on, like in our time, for example. People say, oh, I didn't understand a word of that, but I loved it. And that, that, that was the, the principle that um, I suppose the third programme thought it was operating on in the 50s. But alas, it stopped. The Brains Trust and some of those other programmes, trans transcripts of which you can read now. But that wasn't philosophy in the public domain in quite the way that we mean that now. That was philosophy as done in the seminar room being broadcast on the airwaves. Um, somebody must have thought, I suppose, that we were a nation of insomniacs at that time. Well, in order to preface what I um, wish to say about this important theme, um, may I remind you of something, which is this, that it is only in the last century and a half, let us say, uh, at, the, uh, out, at the outer limit that philosophy has become uh, a pursuit which only specialists can really understand or, or engage in at the fullest. 
But prior to that time, with the great exception of the period in which it wasn't philosophy but theology and its uh, associated casuistries that dominated the mind of, of Europe, uh, up until that time, philosophy belonged to everybody. If you go back to classical antiquity, it would have seemed very strange to have as a theme for a discussion what we're talking about now, because philosophy just did belong to the general culture. All educated people would naturally have been interested and would have been expected to be interested in the debates that we think of as distinctively philosophical. And this is certainly true of the modern period too, up until the second half of the 19th century. Descartes and uh, Spinoza, Locke, Hume, Berkeley, others weren't writing for other professional colleagues in the universities. They were writing for a, a general interested audience, uh, which is why, among other things, one can understand them when one reads them now, uh, rather in contrast to some of the technical philosophy that gets published these days and which doesn't improve on turning the book upside down or having an extra cup of coffee. But in those days, the, the presumption was made that people would be interested in these topics and would want to know uh, what the latest thinking was in them and even indeed to participate them, uh, in them. I had the privilege of uh, being an editor of the uh, um, multi-volume Encyclopedia of British Philosophy that was published some years ago um, and it was astonishing as we looked across the great landscape of philosophical thought in this country alone, just in these islands, how many people had written and contributed to the, uh, the great conversation about philosophical matters in the centuries since uh, the medieval period. And this brings me to a tremendously important point that one has to register in order to make sense of this discussion, and that is that what we think of as philosophy now, philosophy with a capital F in the, in the academy, is a, a, a set of pursuits which are highly selective with respect to the tradition itself. So we get our undergraduates to study ethics and epistemology and metaphysics and philosophical logic and the philosophy of science. We break the uh, field down into different disciplines, different pursuits. We select a number of uh, central texts for them to read and study. And we choose for purposes ultimately of examination half a dozen or eight or nine perhaps topics that we think they ought to know about. And as philosophy itself has become a professionalized academic pursuit where, um, and if Rom and I will ask you to observe the Chatham House rule on this one, the terrible mistake of paying people salaries all their lives long to be philosophers um, has become institutionalized. What we've done is to narrow philosophy down to a, a technical pursuit and we've lost sight therefore of the much larger range of application and interest that it connects with and which, when we look back at the early modern period or when we look back to classical antiquity, we see just how vital and central uh, philosophical debate was to the culture, to the place that it played in the thought and uh, debates uh, and activities of people, especially uh, educated elites in uh, societies uh, in, in those days. The quickest and shortest way to make the point about that is to say... Look at Socrates um, being sentenced to death because the kinds of philosophical inquiries that he engaged in were regarded as subversive or hostile to, or at any rate uncomfortable to, the society that he uh, lived in. It happens, as a little footnote remark, that if um, Plato's political views are anything to go by as an indication of what uh, Socrates' opponents might have thought about him, then he was on the wrong side of the argument, but uh, one wouldn't have wanted to see him put to death anyway. But the fact that a philosopher could be sentenced to death because he was asking questions 
and making people think about things um, is an indication of the importance and centrality to that kind of pursuit in that society at that time. And then the same is true, of course, in the early modern period. Locke wrote on politics and on toleration and on education not as someone whose writings and thoughts were important to the development of major political changes in the late 17th century, but as a post facto justification for them. But it was felt significant enough by the society that there should be such justification, that people ought to reflect on what had happened and try to elicit the principles from what had happened in the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688 for it to be pertinent for somebody like Locke to write on these matters. And so also uh, in the 18th century, in particular with the Enlightenment in France, the idea there was that it was of the first moment that these discussions about matters of value and principle, questions about rights, questions about the individual, questions about the relationship between the individual and society, should be right at the very forefront and should bear fruit in action. In the 18th century, Enlightenment's first flowerings were, of course, in the two great world-changing, history-changing revolutions in North America and in France. And they came directly out of a, a, a tradition of thinking and discussing matters that we would regard now as distinctively philosophical and distinctively ethical. So in those two periods, classical antiquity and the Hellenic period afterwards, and in the uh, first centuries of our modern era, it would have seemed very odd to think it necessary to discuss the question of philosophy in the public space because philosophy just was the debate that the public had with itself about things that mattered. And this was precisely because the conception of philosophy was a good deal broader than the narrowing curriculum that we now teach in our universities at undergraduate level. If you ask somebody what they meant when they talked about philosophy, and here I have to open a little uh, window on the screen and remind you that, of course, in the 16th century, the word philosophy denoted what we now call science. And the word science in the 16th century denoted what we now call philosophy. So it's a little bit confusing, potentially. The distinction was, was made, in, uh, in, certainly in English, uh, by um, talking of natural philosophy to mean what we now think of as physics and the other hard sciences, and of moral philosophy to mean what we now think of as philosophy. But right up in, uh, into the 19th century, philosophy continued to mean science, and people used the term metaphysics to denote what we think of as uh, philosophy. So, for example, when William Hazlitt died on his tombstone, uh, it says he was the first metaphysician of his age. Uh, Hazlitt didn't make any co contributions to what we would think of as metaphysics, that is the inquiry into the nature of existence and of being, uh, but he wrote on moral philosophy and on the principles of action. But at that time, the label given was metaphysics. But he, Hazlitt, and all the others, uh, um, uh, John Stuart Mill, his father, Bentham, uh, their predecessors, Shaftesbury, Hutchison, and others in the 18th century, were all writing for their fellows in society generally. They weren't writing technical disquisitions. They were tackling questions which they regarded as central and vital, and they expected to be read. Of course, in some cases, um, they weren't. Famously, Hume, the first two volumes of the Treatise of Human Nature, 1739, in his own words, they fell stillborn from the press. Nobody read them, not even the one person who reviewed them. Hume himself uh, eventually had to write an anonymous review in which he said that it was a cracking good read, a real page-turner, and so on. But um, generally speaking, there was quite a readership for philosophy, and 
there were lots of uh, discussion groups on, on philosophy. The idea of the book club um, you know, really takes its rise from the 17th and 18th century, people meeting in coffee houses and debating uh, over these topics. No doubt, rather as people still do today in the pub, you know how it is when you talk about philosophical problems in the pub, you get smarter as the evening goes by. No doubt uh, that happened with people in the past also. But at least it was something that was felt to be quite a, a vital part of cultural life. To some extent, of course, this still goes on in the continent of Europe, continental Europe. Uh, certainly in France, they have the Café Philo tradition in some places, um, where it's possible to be a philosopher for an hour or two. Uh, and it's a good thing that that should be the case, because the sentiment remains that this is something that constitutes part of the texture of the intellectual life of a, of a community. <coughs> Now, if you were to think of uh, the leading philosophical movements in the Anglophone tradition of analytic philosophy in the years immediately after the Second World War, one of the central facts of which, of course, was the Holocaust, the uh, um, industrial mass murder of the Jewish populations of, of Europe. If you think about analytic philosophy at that time, if you think about ethics at that time, if you think about the leading contributors to ethical debate, people like Richard Hare, R.M. Hare, um, you're, you're astonished by the contrast between what had just happened in a massive upheaval in humankind and, and tremendous atrocities committed against the rights of, of people and the claim made by people like Richard Hare that it was not the task of the moral philosopher to say what is, what is right or wrong or how we should live and how we should evaluate these things, but that the task of the moral philosopher is a meta-ethical one to look at how we use uh, certain types of words like right and wrong, good and bad, and in particular how we should um, uh, understand the logic of sentences which contain words like ought or which uh, assert obligations. It is a stark contrast. It looks like a decamping of uh, a responsibility. It looks like a failure of nerve in the face of something so awful that uh, moral philosophy no longer has anything to say or much to contribute and therefore had better be a narrow specialism, had better address itself to a very, very narrow range of concerns. And I think to some extent, uh, um, to be frank about it, I think it was a loss of nerve. Uh, and this idea that we... Um, um, thinking of, of people especially interested in ethics at that time, saying we don't have either the right or the expertise uh, to, to pontificate on these subjects or to tell people how they should live or, or evaluate things, was a response to the sense of impotence and futility that people had in the face of these terrible atrocities and the awful recent history. It was left to more practically-minded people um, to do what the committee under Eleanor Roosevelt did in drawing up the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. One of the most interesting documents of, uh, of all times, really. Because even though it is a, a document uh, full of generalizations and, and vaguenesses and um, unanalyzed concepts, idea of right to life, right to privacy, right to... Uh, you know, conscience, right to choice of uh, who you marry, where you live, whether or not you have children, what work you do, all, all these, these um, fine-sounding generalizations don't seem to have uh, the kind of texture, the kind of content that a much more vigorous attempt to understand the embodied concepts would uh, result in. But it is a very, very interesting uh, document, nevertheless, because it tried, 
tries to open up a space uh, for thinking about the minimum necessary for human individuals if they have the energy and the dedication to make good lives for themselves. It tries to open up a space for people to make certain very fundamental choices for themselves and leaves open to the rest of us to have that more detailed conversation about what we mean by, for example, a right to life. Let me just say one little thing about that particular point because it's a very, very interesting one. It's one that shows us that, we, that, that philosophy needs to tackle these deeply uh, practical uh, issues in order to make good sense of them. What is a right to life? Well, it's not a right to, wouldn't be satisfied by somebody living in a cage and being fed bread and water. There's an assumption or an implication that a right to life is a right to a certain quality of life. And that immediately raises questions about what a, a, a life is that has quality, what sorts of decisions we might make, for example, in our social and medical practice about these matters, what degree of autonomy people have about choices that affect themselves and their own judgment about their quality of life. And this, as we know, has become a major talking point in society, and it's left up to us to put forward arguments and to evaluate them, to discuss and uh, uh, criticize those arguments. And it also, of course, invites the best of our uh, uh, efforts in these arguments to be generous and to be um, inclusive and to be tolerant and to understand the needs and the interests and desires of people across the range whose experience of life uh, is unique to themselves or individual to themselves. So that right in the Universal Declaration is a, a statement of something so important that it needs more reflection, it needs more examination, it needs all of our participation as philosophers, since we as, as intelligent primates are by nature philosophers, it needs our engagement as philosophers to clarify it and enrich our understanding of it. And so this relates to the point about the narrowing of the curriculum. If you were to ask somebody, and this is the point I was making earlier, what they meant by philosophy, they would have said something that amounted to this, reflective inquiry, attempt to, to clarify, to understand, to discriminate, uh, to uh, draw the correct distinctions where they need to be drawn, to formulate questions accurately so we can try to understand what might count as an answer to them. In other words, an, an effort, of, an effort of, of thinking of thinking things through and of doing it in a way which is not invested in prior commitments or, or prejudices. Uh, a, a, a process of, of examining the best evidence and the best reasons that people might have for putting a certain sort of view and uh, debating with one another, um, challenging one another to come up with good defences, the making of a good case. So reflective inquiry. Now, this is what was meant by the ancients. This is why philosophy was the parole, really, of uh, educated society in classical antiquity. This is why in the early modern period, when it had become possible again for people to raise important questions about, for example, the foundations of, of ethics, or to put the question to nature and try to understand without uh, being bound by holy writ as to what nature um, is and, and whether the sun goes around the earth or vice versa. Once people were free really to look at the evidence or really to examine the reasons, then this became the central thrust of what they were doing. This became what it was to do philosophy. That is, 
to, to draw distinctions, to clarify, to analyze, to understand, uh, to ask the right questions, and to do it in a way that accepted both the defeasibility of, of human reason and exploration uh, and the demand to be intellectually honest. And this is something that remains today. The, the prospect of a rational discourse about how we should conduct ourselves in society, now what we should value in society, that depends upon the idea of people being sufficiently open-minded and sufficiently uh, critical and sufficiently honest intellectually for that rational debate to proceed and to get somewhere. I'll give you an example of why this is important. You only have to look at the political debate in a, in a liberal democracy of, of our kind to notice that uh, everything proceeds on party lines. People have prior commitments to a particular line. Most of the people um, involved have to toe that party line. They have to argue however diffident they may feel themselves about that party line in favor of it. This is not honest inquiry. This is not uh, debate in, in Parliament which is completely open to uh, the best argument. It's rather uh, a debate in which the, the rhetoric of support for a particular line is the thing that's significant. And if we wanted a, a serious and rational discussion about how we should comport ourselves in society, then we have to do it in a way that, that matches the ideal of the philosophical endeavor. Again, to be clear, uh, to, to analyze, to ask hard questions, and to be open to good, good reasons and persuasive contrary evidence. Well, that decamping of responsibility evident in the um, early years, the first decade or two after the Second World War, where a very narrow conception of what philosophy is became dominant, just the analysis of, uh, of language, just a meta-ethical inquiry about norms and the assertions of them, gave way under pressure of necessity, really, to an interesting departure, the emergence in the um, debate in society of what has come to be called applied philosophy. Applied philosophy is a response to a need that society has felt for reflection, considered inquiry, considered reflective inquiry into the whole variety of problems that we face in society when we have to make important decisions. One of the spurs to it, I mean, really the Society for Applied Philosophy, I think, was set up in the, in the 1980s as one symptom of this felt need for uh, addressing practical questions of concern, for having a considered response to moral panics in society, uh, to the need to think about what we really value and how we should practice on the basis of it. But what, one of the prompts to this was the rapid development of technologies and uh, treatments in medicine. So, for example, in the early years of kidney dialysis, when there were very few dialysis machines, decisions had to be made about who was going to benefit from um, access to these machines. And committees were set up to choose uh, how access to these machines was going to be rationed. And then a study was made of the kinds of decisions that were arrived at by these committees. And it was discovered that the people who were getting dialysis were very similar in social profile to the people on the committee who were making the decisions. And this rang all the alarm bells in the world. The fact that 
the way resources were being allocated, the way that goods were being apportioned and made available to people, um, really had to be thought about on much better principles than, than that you found somebody familiar and you, and you thought they were worth keeping alive because you were worth keeping alive. Um, and this sparked a debate. I mean, I suppose one could say that, that contemporary medical ethics really took its greatest uh, proximate spur from this realization, because it was quite a shocking one in its way, showing how assumptions and prejudices and, and uh, unconscious uh, reasoning was determining allocation of resources, pressed people to think again about how it might be done more justly and more appropriately. And there has been, therefore, uh, a tremendous explosion of debate across the whole range of thinking about medical provision, a very, very important debate. Medical ethics is now one of the richest areas of serious and consequential thinking in philosophy in our contemporary world. But of course it hasn't stopped there. I very often get asked to go and uh, talk to big companies, big corporates about business ethics. I've noticed that uh, the more badly businesses behave, the more lectures they have on business ethics. It's a, a direct relationship uh, and, and a very understandable one. And what, what, what the uh, sphere of commercial activity where um, ethics weekends and lectures and classes and weeks and so on are held most assiduously tend to be the extraction industries, the oil and mining industries, since they are the ones who cause the most disruption to people and the environment, uh, and consequently they, um, they allocate a lot of their resources to, to ethics lectures. I think, I think some of the impulse for it is, is sincere on their part. I mean, they would sincerely like to know um, how to cover their backs, that's one, one thing. They would also sincerely like to know how to make reparations. Uh, one particular company, nothing to do with me, uh, because they started doing it before I started talking to them, but um, engaged in uh, a major uh, series of projects for land reclamation and for investment in businesses for people that they had trained and who they, they were leaving behind once they finished mining in that area. Um, building clinics and schools for people. A lot of planning gain for the governments of developing countries where they went in to do extraction. So however much harm they continue to do just because of their mining practices, nevertheless they were conscious of the fact that they had to make some kind of return for what they were doing. And uh, it's better that that should be the case than that it shouldn't. So even there, even in the case of, of business ethics, um, it, it, it's, it has some uh, useful consequence, the fact that philosophical reflection, reflection on questions of value, questions of, of uh, equity, of justice, um, should arise and people should take them seriously. Also now, in applied ethics, we find a lot of discussion about the environment. Environmental ethics has become tremendously important. It's not possible to think about, uh, say, the effects of climate change and um, what's happening to the uh, uh, to, to, to the world as it immediately affects human beings without also thinking of the impact on, on animals and on nature in general and on our responsibility to nature and our responsibilities to the unborn, to future generations and to see our relationship with the natural world around us now as one not of possession and mastery but one of a sort of fiduciary uh, trust of having in trust a very precious resource that we must try to hand on um, in, in a good, as good a shape as possible. You see that in all these cases, the awareness is that life, that choice, that action is value-soaked. And b b when one realizes that, one sees the responsibility to think carefully about it, to recognize 
the consequences of choices and actions, to recognize responsibility. Morality is fundamentally about relationships and about the responsibilities that relationships bear. Ethics, which is the encompassing uh, um, inquiry of which morality is a part, is about what sort of people we are, why we live as we do, what choices and, and, and values are the right ones for us. And we live in one respect in, in happy times because it has been a great discovery of, of, of um, the modern West that it's not true that there is only one right answer, one great good to which everybody must sign up on penalty of uh, punishment, on pain of punishment if we don't, but that there are as many legitimate and plausible and valuable choices as there are individuals to make them or as there are individuals with the talents to make them. And that's a very important finding. But it, it increases the responsibility on individuals to think, therefore, about those choices and about the values that they wish to realize in their lives. And notice this, that this is not just a matter for philosophy undergraduates or for people interested in philosophy, but for everybody. It's a matter for individuals and for the communities they constitute. And therefore, the philosophical debate about those things is crucial to them. We all of us have, as it were, uh, a responsibility to be philosophical. Not in the sense, my favorite joke, this one, where I always tell my, my um, students, not in the sense in which the one old lady said to the other on the Glasgow bus, my dear, you must be philosophical about this, don't give it another thought. Rather, the responsibility is to, to keep thinking and, and to, to, to recognize that if we give up and we operate just on the basis of our reflexes and prejudices and thoughts that we happen to, to have uh, decades ago, that we're not being fresh and responsive in our relationships with others and with the world. And that is why philosophy matters at the individual level. But it also matters tremendously uh, at the level of, um, of society, in politics and in our community conversations that we have about the kinds of choices and values that we make collectively. And here, I think, is what people really mean when they talk about philosophy in the public sphere. What can philosophy, as a recognized uh, pursuit study, and philosophers, the people who teach it and who have the opportunity to, to read and to inquire, and to try and think things through. What contributions can they make in the, in the public sphere? Well, firstly, I think it's very important to recognize that a, a great deal of philosophy gets done in the public sphere without our noticing it quite under that name. I think if you look at our better uh, columnists, let's say, or commentators in the newspapers, quite a lot of, of what they do is to examine ideas or to put forward arguments or to assess the arguments of others or to criticize and, and evaluate um, policy decisions which are made by, by government, national and local. And, and all that is an application of the method of reflective inquiry. It's, it's a part of the uh, uh, attempt to make sense of things uh, and to examine them and to come to a reasoned conclusion about them. That is philosophy and practice. We don't necessarily give it that name. We don't recognize it as such. We don't uh, perhaps think that, that it would be right to give it that name. Perhaps that's too pretentious or too inflated in some way. But that is exactly what it is. Now, when we um, see debates in the Supreme Court, uh, as it's now called, or in the House of Lords, or uh, in the broadsheet newspapers, or in the late-night television programs, and they 
address themselves to those recurring moral panics that we have in society or to major issues about reforms in the health service or in the education um, system. When we see those going on, we are seeing philosophical discussion in our society going on. And it therefore matters that that should be a good discussion, that philosophical styles of thought, a consciousness and awareness of the nature of good argument uh, and a consciousness also of the um, debates and conversations that society has had with itself over time, the history of these things, the distilled wisdom and the residue of past mistakes and, and past good judgments should be present also. This is why a society is, is best when it's an educated society, and an educated society is one which is going to be good at this day-to-day -day philosophy, at this philosophy in the public sphere. We know that there are many substantive issues where we have to make what are quite straightforward, up-and-down philosophical decisions, uh, for example, about justice, about the distribution of goods in our society and access to them, where we have to make um, very, very major decisions about how we structure our education system. Take, for example, what's happening in the higher education sphere at the moment. This society has made a choice. It's going to spend money... Um, I'll be tendentious here. This is just a, a statement of fact. We're going to spend money on a nuclear deterrent and not on universities. Now, that is a choice that the society has made, and as a result, it has to make further choices. It has to impose... Um, quite hard choices, really, on those sectors of, of society bearing the burden of that decision, of the result of that decision. That, in its way, is a, is a philosophical choice, because it's a choice about what matters, about what's important now and in the future. Defence, defence of a certain kind, having a certain kind of capacity, uh, as against defending ourselves against other things, the costs of ignorance or the costs of failure in the educational system. <coughs> This is a, a, a choice which we can all discuss. We all have views about some uh, uh, more strongly held than others. And those views consist of arguments. And the arguments are attempts to articulate and defend certain principles, certain attitudes. This is through and through a philosophical matter. This is philosophy in the public domain as a matter of really serious and immediate concern. Now, some people think that uh, um, philosophy in the public domain is the same thing as applied ethics, that the two are coterminous. Applied philosophy and applied ethics are the same thing. And to a very large extent, that's true, given what I've just been saying about the fact that our public life, our social life, is value-soaked, that everything we do is a matter of choice and turns on questions of principle. Uh, and the, 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 the thought that we do it best if we are good at arguing, good at putting an argument, good at making a case, good at recognizing a good argument and being prepared to accept it and to change one's mind, good, therefore, at being intellectually honest, that all these things are ideals of the, of the philosophical uh, life, the philosophical comportment. Um, so it's true that because everything is soaked through and through with, with uh, considerations of value, that applied philosophy and applied ethics are the same thing. But they're not, not exactly coterminous because there are many other domains in which styles of philosophical thought, philosophical ideas, the things that we've learned from the history of philosophy and which we can apply now uh, come to be of very great importance. Um, for example, 
in thinking about um, uh, science and about the implications of the, the things learned in the natural sciences to our um, understanding of ourselves. I think the great uh, debate, it may even be quarrel over sociobiology and evolutionary psychology is a perfectly good example of this. A great deal of very fine empirical work done in evolutionary biology, a great deal of very fine empirical work done in uh, um, psychophysiology, uh, physiological psychology, uh, and then questions about our understanding of human nature and the human good and uh, the difference between the, the sexes and what's natural or unnatural for human beings to do or think or feel, and attempts to try to export insights from one field to another immediately raises philosophical questions about the legitimacy of doing that. And this is not uh, a matter, or immediately a matter of value, a matter of ethics, but a matter of explanation of how powerful um, the resources of some of the natural sciences can be in understanding problems in other areas. This is a question of epistemology. Uh, indeed, um, you, you might think that uh, the kinds of things that we value in in reasoning, and of course reasoning is meant to be the central feature of a, a philosophical approach to anything, would apply as much in questions about moral panics in society or about the applications of scientific findings to uh, social problems uh, as they do to questions of literary value or to aesthetic judgment or to um, thinking about uh, the, the, the built environment. And indeed they do, because in every one of these cases, a case has to be made, an argument has to be put, evidence has to be marshaled and evaluated. Um, people have to uh, ask themselves whether they accept a proposition put to them, a proposition about um, what the built environment should look like, or wh whether or not we really can rely on uh, what we've learned in evolutionary biology when we're thinking about public policy in education, let's say. So all these are applications of philosophy as well, and again, they all apply in the public world. It may be, and I conclude on this thought, that actually philosophy is a public matter. Philosophy is something which, through and through, the whole texture, the whole fabric of our individual and our social lives is at the very center of what we're doing when we think and discuss and argue and read and find out and look for evidence and make decisions. And that philosophy, with a capital P, as studied in a university, is one slightly overcooked fragment of that much more general thing, which really is philosophy. That when you read these very technical papers in philosophical journals, full of very long words like marmalade and corrugated iron, and uh, you have to have a, a, a scholastic education in order to be part of the conversation about that, that what you're doing is something quite rarefied. I think it has a value, uh, there's no question about it. Knowing what's under the bonnet of your motor car is very helpful when you drive your motor car from A to B. But it's the driving from A to B which is the really important thing in philosophy, and the years spent looking under the bonnet shouldn't become all that there is uh, to philosophy. Thank you very much. Now, we do have time for some questions and discussion. 
And Professor Grady is happy to, to uh, uh, how shall I say, deal with, deal with, deal with your uh, remarks. We have a roving microphone, so we can all hear what's being said. So I shall act as kind of monitor of where the microphone goes. So if you can have uh, some hand raised for some, yes, up here. You did mention uh, two points which I'd like to comment on and hear what you have to say. Um, one was the abdication of uh, analytic philosophers to make ethical comments after the Second World War, and the other was the fact that in countries like France there still is a public debate in philosophy. Isn't it also true that in the professional sphere, uh, much uh, derided by some people in this country, continental philosophy, had a lot to say about what went on in the Second World War. I'm thinking of people like Levinas and Adorno. And in fact, part of the attraction for many people of continental philosophy is the fact that it speaks to everyday life and to everyday concerns. Whereas, as you say, a lot of certainly technical analytic philosophy fails to do so. That's certainly true. And uh, it's something which is admirable about the continental traditions, of which there are a number, of course, existentialism and the Frankfurt School and, and various others, that, that, that is an admirable feature of them. It's not entirely true, however, that your um, regular commuters on the Frankfurt bus are discussing Adorno and Horkheimer, um, because uh, if, you, if you do try to read them, you'll see that you have to get into the rhythm uh, of, of their vocabulary and their way of thinking just as much as you might in analytic philosophy. But, but, but it's certainly true that they do address themselves to these more pressing social questions much, much more directly than we uh, were wont to do here until, I think, fairly recently. We are doing it much more in the Anglophone analytic tradition, but uh, more after our fashion. In fact, I could have commented on the, on the fact that when you look at something like the Journal of Applied Philosophy, you see quite an interesting mixture between um, the uh, uh, discussions which are genuinely relevant to what's going on in, in contemporary society, and then some discussions which have much more of that abstract theoretical feel. And I should also remind you that in, in France, you know, the French are very famous for saying allegedly, uh, well, it works in practice, but does it work in theory? You know, and so their, their philosophical uh, approach um, is one which is uh, uh, as much recreational as intellectual. Um, I mean, you rightly point out that there's sort of an increasing specialization in um, professional philosophy. Um, this raises some um, two questions. First is, almost as a bad thing, should the university education change? I mean, should the structure of philosophy departments change? And what should the relation between professional philosophers and philosophers more generally, as you sketch them, um, be? So should uh, people working I mean, the academic world um, engage more or more engage differently with the public or what sort of recommendations would you have? I mean, where do you see this whole thing going? Well, I, I'm inclined to think that uh, undergraduate philosophy is, uh, in the Anglophone analytic tradition, certainly is a little over-specialized, that we educate our undergraduate philosophers as if they were going to be scholars in, in philosophy. Uh, which is very much more, um, I think, the task for graduate schools, where an opportunity for getting deep into the, uh, into the details of arguments um, is more appropriate. Um, 
Part of my reason for thinking this is that if you look at the great landscape of philosophical literature, if you look, for example, at what there is in Seneca and Cicero and Pliny and Plutarch and uh, writers like that of the uh, Hellenic and Roman periods, um, there is an enormous amount of discussion about the practicalities of living and how you face death and how you think about poverty and failure. I mean, really quite uh, moving and, and very often deep and perceptive wisdom. Um, and a, a, lot of, a lot of philosophical reflection can, if one approaches it um, with that interest, be very enriching uh, and, and can make a difference to one's life. But that's something which is entirely ignored when we teach philosophy in our, in our undergraduate courses these days. So we go for the narrow set, half a dozen or so, of particular technical topics. We do it for good reason, but I, I would like to see that uh, rather broader understanding of what philosophy is and has to offer as well. Get, the, get more of the specialism moved into graduate schools and have this rather broader conception of um, the best that has been thought and said, as Matthew Arnold put it, about what it is to be human, about the human condition. I meant the second question with the interaction between the academia and the outside world, as it were. Yes, also, I, I do also think that uh, those of us who have had the tremendous privilege of being allowed to study and to, and to spend time thinking about things, reading and writing about them, teaching them, because as you know, teaching is by far the best way to learn anything. Um, so th those of us who have had that opportunity in my view, at any rate, have some obligation to be part of the conversation outside. It's not that we go and pontificate and tell people what to think and how to think and so on, but if, if we become part of the story and, and we join in the discussion that society has, there is a great deal that we can offer from the resources that we have access to, because you know we've been reading um, some of the best of the past, people in the past, some of whom have encountered kinds of problems in a slightly different form that we encounter now, and uh, so we can remind people. That what happens in our contemporary society is that the wheel gets invented in all sorts of geometrical shapes very often, and uh, we could just remind people. Wittgenstein said assembling reminders is an important part of philosophy, and even if we just did that, it would be a contribution. Hi, uh, thanks, yeah, again on the issue of specialization. Um, so uh, the idea is that philosophy used to be written for a more general audience and now we see that it's written for more specialized audience with uh, a lot of different branches of specializations. Uh, but I was wondering, do you think we could trace the same trajectory for a lot of other disciplines that we regard you know, more so as just the sciences. Like at the time of Darwin, um, you know, perhaps quite a lot of the general public could participate in discussions of biology, but now that's changed quite a lot as the subject has become more specialised. Uh, and whether, you know, that's less appropriate for philosophy than it is for the natural sciences. Yes, that's a very good point. Uh, when Darwin came back from the Beagle voyage, of course, he went to the Royal Geological Society, not to Cambridge, to report his findings. And the people who heard that report were interested members of the general public, a lot of whom had a great deal of expertise because of their passion for, for the uh, uh, topic. Um, the, 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 the hard sciences are a, a rapidly accumulating body of knowledge and insight and technique, and it's not possible to be a, a net contributor in the hard sciences unless you've acquired that expertise. 
Um, so in the hard sciences and I think in the vocational subjects where there's a great deal of data and of technique to be imparted by teachers to pupils, um, the idea of specializing, the idea of uh, more and more subdivisions in the pursuit becomes necessary. The humanities have made the terrible mistake of trying to copy that, of having the same sort of undergraduate structure, uh, academic journals and writing research papers as if they, they were modeling themselves on the natural sciences. And it hasn't been an entirely, uh, an entirely happy thing. Um, it seems to me that the uh, approach um, in all sorts of ways would profit from being slightly different. For example, getting some maturation of, of one's ability to think and one's insights into things is not a time, um, you know, so it's not something that you can do in three years. It's not something that you, you would expect to have been told how to do or taught how to do in a, in a certain time frame. It's something that you might begin when you do a post-school advanced education, uh, but on the, on, the, on the premise that this will continue and that you will grow and that you will read more and that you will fit into something of the framework that you've there acquired that will you know, continue to be enriching. Um, so it's a different model and a, and a different kind of approach is needed. And I think, you know, I, I, I never forget the story told about G.E. Moore as Wittgenstein's examiner for the PhD. You'll know that, that Wittgenstein only ever got one degree, and that was the PhD, and he got it at the age of 40, and he got it for the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus. Uh, and G.E. Moore was a very, very old-fashioned Cambridge don who hated postgraduate study and PhDs and things because he thought of them as a vile import from America, via, you know, from Germany, actually, via America. And so when he wrote his report on Wittgenstein's PhD, he said, this is a work of genius, but it otherwise satisfies the requirements of the PhD. And uh, that, that sort of sums it up when it comes to philosophy. Why should it be modelled on a PhD in biology? If I could just put a very small footnote on what was, I thought, a very interesting talk that you gave. For me as an American, uh, perhaps the most important thing that happened in the 50s was the work of John Rawls, mm -hmm. because it really exemplified this notion about philosophy and the public world. Mm -hmm. And I know that in my own personal case, I was about to leave philosophy, and then I read a most, what I thought, remarkable article, which was Justice is Fairness, and I said, no, there's still a field here where one might find something interesting to do. But at any rate, as I said, it's just a very small footnote. No, no, I agree with you. I think, I think you're dead right about that, yeah. Um, and and by, by the way, uh, not, not alone. Oh, there's somebody up there who's drowning or who's about to leap off the balcony. <laughs> You could, you could, you don't need a um, thing, do you? So we'll be with you in one take. Now, I, I do agree with that, uh, and I don't think actually that um, it, it would have lasted very long. This, this ordinary language philosophy, Oxford-style philosophy of the 1560s, I don't think that by itself it could have lasted very long because it had very few places to go. It was a, a self-defeating uh, approach to the, to the problem. And as I say, uh, the the um, grassroots desire, demand really, for thinking about applied problems, about practical problems in society, 
um, you know, they didn't wait for, for people like Peter Singer, who brilliantly, you know, uh, opened up the debate and thinking about bringing animals into the moral domain too, and so on. But uh, the, the pressure for that was, was there because a society does need to talk to itself about these things. Well, what about that gentleman up there? Natural justice seems to. Can, can, you, can, you, can you speak without the microphone? No. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, uh, the, the experience I've, I've had um, occasionally with discussing philosophy is that it not only requires um, some talent to explain to lay people what the solution to problems are, but also that the problems are problems. Right? So the, the problems that themselves require some sort of motivation, right? so they're not kind of found naturally in people's ordinary lives. And I guess the question for me is to what extent does professional philosophy create problems where none existed? Right? So there certainly are some problems that people didn't realize were problems before, like they might just not have thought about it. But there also seems to be this other category of things. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Various things that Wittgenstein and other people that sort of mm -hmm. said. Uh, so what, to, to what degree do you think that sort of thing is going on? I think to quite a considerable degree, actually, because when you have a profession and you're going to draw a salary for it all your life long, and, and you run out of ideas after, you know, halfway through your PhD, well, th there is a temptation to, to look for problems and, and to create them. Um, th there is also, uh, I think, uh, a difficulty about this, which is itself uh, a philosophical um, problem, which is that uh, all the great concepts under scrutiny in philosophy, like goodness and truth and knowledge and, and beauty and reason and well, all these things. Um, it, 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 it's, it's itself a puzzle how you approach even beginning to have a discussion about them uh, in this way. Take the concept of truth. Is it a univocal concept? Is the predicate is true, the same predicate when applied to a mathematical statement or a moral statement or a statement about the external world? And you've already got a meta-meta you know, um, theoretical discussion about what it is you're discussing and how you're going to pin that down and, and locate it. And this does absorb a tremendous amount of oxygen in, in philosophy, there's no question. You know, while wars are happening and people are dying and, and, uh, and uh, there's great injustice in society, we're all worried about, uh, well, what, what exactly is the problem which is, which is the problem here? Um, and, and in fact, that's a legitimate aspect of it, but it shouldn't be the whole of it. And in our uh, analytic tradition of philosophy, at any rate, uh, problems about problems have um, filled up the horizon far too often and, and far too much. Yes, I just wonder, of course, many philosophers who concern themselves with um, conceptual questions in science, like such as, you know, what does general relativity tell us about the nature of space and time? What about evidence in climate science? Um, conceptual problems about units of selection um, in Darwinism and so on. So are these people then, it's, I mean it seems hard, these problems of course can hardly be, um, it can hardly be in a discussion about uh, in a general public sphere about these problems because precisely you need a lot of knowledge about the very technical sciences to discuss them. So what about these problems then and these people um, we engage in conceptual work and so seem to be philosophers because the problems are very conceptual. Mm. Um, but they don't seem to be then philosophers according to your um, definition or to your view you endorsed here. And furthermore, of course, that's not something new. I mean, when you just think back about um, Newton and what Newton did, of course, he very 
he was a philosopher, he was a scientist, both, and of course worried a lot about the views of space and time implied by his theory and so on. So there's, there seems to be also a kind of philosophy which, which is very hard to do in a general sphere in the public world. Well, that, that's perfectly true, of course, and, and uh, um, I think my point is not that that kind of technical, conceptual work in philosophy shouldn't be done or is valueless, because it isn't. It's very important. It's very valuable. Um, I liken that to looking under the bonnet of the car. Somebody's got to do that, and at some point uh, we all profit from doing it. But if you thought that was the whole story, then we would be missing a very important trick, and the important trick is that actually um, trying to think clearly and, and rigorously about what really matters uh, ha has to be a major part of this story also. And in fact, the connection between those very recondite-seeming specialized debates in technical philosophy and these more general considerations, the connection between them is not a distant one. Very often you can show how quickly you can go from what looks like a very technical discussion in epistemology or somewhere to how this affects how we think in, uh, in, in ordinary affairs. Um, and therefore the desideratum really is to, to, to see the business of, of thinking, the business of evaluation, the business of inquiry, of questioning and discussing as being uh, inclusive all the way from the most special to the most public. And this brings me back to a point that was made earlier by another questioner about um, uh, elsewhere in the humanities. You know, we not only divide philosophy up into epistemology, metaphysics, and so on for undergraduate purposes, but we also separate philosophy from history and history from literature. And in fact, all these pursuits are all of them part of the great effort that we make if we are intellectually sensitive and, and engaged to understand what it is to be human and the human condition. I mean, I, I think the two greatest resources for philosophical reflection in the more general sense are history and literature. And I, I often tell people that I, uh, if I'm asked to go to speak to an undergraduate philosophy society and they say, don't, don't talk about something too technical, well, then I have my stop uh, talk, which is um, called On Reading Novels in the Morning. Because if you think about it, most of those of us who are over 21 would be horrified. Would you read a novel at... 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning if you weren't on holiday. There seems to be something quite wrong about it. You know, you're sort of illegitimate. You're going to do it after tea time or when you've got home from work or in the evening or at bedtime. And why? Well, if you consider that, uh, that literature is a tremendous resource for insight into the human condition, that if you were seriously philosophical, you would spend most of your time reading novels as you would uh, reading history. Yeah, um I was thinking about you know, the, the fact that there's a certain kind of technical philosophy which is going away when, when Rawls comes in. And I think Rawls is really an important figure here in bringing philosophy back to, to, think, you know, to make us think about social problems. But, but it's interesting that you know, to put Rawls on the map, you really have to think about a whole different, very technical strain of philosophy slash economics that comes sort of from Arrow, Nash, Braithwaite, Sen, Harsanyi. I mean, without that line, there is no Rawls. So it's kind of a, a different, and now of course, you know, Rawls in his presentation style doesn't have the same kind of technicalities, but it really, that, that's, that's where Rawls comes from. So it seems like it's a particular kind of technicality that we see in, in, in mathematics and so on, you know, between the 50s and 
up to the mid-60s, that, that is kind of forgotten. But a different kind of technicality comes in you know, with the philosophy, economics, um, Lincoln. And Brian Barry, of course, needs to be thrown in that equation as well. Yeah. So it's puzzling. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Um, but but I, I think the analogy that one wants to run here is between the person who knows how a computer works and the person who works on a computer. Um, that that you, in, in order to use uh, your laptop effectively to email and write and store files and, and what have you, doesn't it re require the level of technical competence that would allow you to build a computer. But somebody must have had it and be able to do it uh, to create that functionality. So th 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 there is an outcome of uh, debates that people have in, in, in different areas of philosophy where big ideas, big theories, perspectives, attitudes, uh, changes of ways of thinking about things come out into the public domain where people can make very good use of them and they can affect public policy and they can uh, direct individuals to act in different ways. And so so the, the analogy you know, b b um, between the IT specialist and the ordinary user of the computer is not a bad one in this respect. Um, but, but it does throw up one consideration and that is that uh, you know, it behoves people, if they have the opportunity and the capacity, uh, to, to um, get behind the screen of the, of the philosophical computer a bit sometimes, really to understand what motivates certain ideas and positions, because that's very, very liberating and, and very educative. Most often when we make assumptions about things, I'll give you one very, very simple example. Um, somebody who thinks... Uh, 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 for, for example, about the Christian story, let us say, uh, and who is not aware of the range of very similar stories about um, divine fathers and mortal mothers and so on in Greek mythology, might think that this is a very unusual and very unique story, but when they understand more of the context or more of the history, it might change their attitude towards it. And so that, that the same applies in this kind of case. The lady by the pillar. You've mentioned the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and that the importance of this document has been to open up, amongst others, to open up space for discussion on minimal qualities. Now, I think one development that has also come with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is that a lot of uh, discourse on, on values, uh, that a lot of discourse on values is now taking uh, place in a language of rights. Uh, uh, through the employment of, of legal arguments. So could you comment on how do you perceive that relationship, discussion of values in a legal language? Um, do, do you mean to, to suggest that uh, by overemphasizing the question of individual rights, we've lost sight of things like individual obligations, collective rights, community rights, that kind of thing? Is that, is that what you have in mind? Uh, no, I just, well, I, I, I would just be interested on how you see actually this development, that increasingly discussion on values is actually taking place in, in, legal, uh, in, in legal, employing legal discourse. Well, here, here of course, the history of ideas is, uh, is very illuminating because um, you have to remember that the idea of the individual, of autonomy, of privacy, of self-determination, uh, the idea that uh, individuals should be allowed to express themselves freely, freedom of expression. These very recent ideas in human history, or one part of human history, lie against the background of uh, 
many, many, many centuries in which almost all human individuals belonged to somebody else, an absolute monarch, or um, ha had to live under obedience to an ideology, to an idea, or to, to a person. Um, and so, in historical terms, it's a very recent phenomenon that we can exercise what we conceptualize as rights. I mean, of course, there's a controversy about whether you know, there is such a thing as natural rights or whether they're all positively um, uh, accorded people by the structures of certain kinds of societies. But, but leaving that aside, the fact that, um, that nobody in their right mind would want to be, for example, uh, a woman in some other part of history or perhaps in some other parts of the world uh, is thereby recognizing the huge difference that this way of thinking about things and this way of talking has made to us. Uh, and um, that, that's, that's very valuable. The danger, of course, with things like that is that they all harden into prejudices and into um, uh, assumptions unless they're kept fresh and, and uh, we, we, we interrogate them and we ask um, about the other side of the coin, like, for example, our obligations to one another and to uh, our sort of collective um, being. Um, we, we, would, we would lose sight of important things there too. Again, um, the, the point about philosophy is that it is conversation, it is debate, it is asking questions, challenging, being sceptical. Uh, a, a good philosopher is the person who asks good questions, and that's open to all of us to be. That chap at the back. Behind you. Behind. behind you, that's what they say at the pantomime, isn't it? Behind you, behind you. You, you mentioned environmental ethics briefly, and uh, you talked about businesses giving more lectures, sponsoring more lectures as, as they are more corrupt. And I thought you didn't pay anywhere near so much attention to environmental ethics as is needed. And, and then you, you, you concluded with an analogy about, about, about philosophy as a journey, and he used an analogy of looking under the bonnet of a car as, as uh, representing technical philosophy as being very detailed. And I thought, when, when, when you gave such, a, such a, a very little attention to environmental ethics, and then conclude with that analogy, then I thought, you don't really care about environmental ethics, and it's just one more specialism. That, that it's, just, it's just one more specialism, whereas in fact, environmental ethics, and, and the, the, the environmental problems that we face are going to overwhelmingly dominate everything, and, and you seem to miss that altogether. So your objection is to the fact that I used the polluting example of a motor car, <laughs> the carbon footprint of which is too great. No, I, I don't at all underestimate the importance of uh, our um, ethical reflections and practical reflections on the environment, because you're quite right. Uh, it's the one thing that's going to wipe us all out if we're not careful. Um, and indeed, it may be terribly late in the day. And we have to ask ourselves about what kinds of hard choices we are prepared to make in our personal lives, what we're prepared to give up, what we're prepared to stop doing, 
um, in, in order to try to help to make some sort of difference, like, for example, not traveling so much, not traveling by air, giving up our cars, walking everywhere, uh, recycling everything assiduously, and really making that kind of effort that would make a, a, a big difference to the kind of comfortable lives that we've been used to. Um, so I don't underestimate the difficulties or the importance of it. But, well, let, let me tell you an anecdote, which is that uh, um, someone I know who had run a very successful uh, book-selling chain, started it and, and ran it, and then um, sold it, and decided that he was going to invest the money that he had thereby made in environmental, environmentally friendly products. He was going to start a chain of supermarkets in which everything was an environmentally responsible product, right from where it was sourced, how far it had travelled from, what effect it had on the environment once it had been used or during its use, and so on. And he looked into it very carefully because he was a person uh, responsible about the due diligence required for these things. And he came to the conclusion that uh, the efforts of individuals, although important and especially psychologically significant, by themselves could never be enough and that what really was required was massive intergovernmental collective action on a very, very large scale, that the situation is so serious that that had to be the way forward, and that the, the ethical imperative here is even more that we should try to take action on the political front, on the collective front, than on the individual front, even though the individual front is very important. And I think um, you know, anybody who, who's conscious of, of what the problems are in the world today, uh, for them the tremendous importance of the environment and of our responsibilities to it individually and collectively, uh, for them it sort of goes without saying. Well we must uh, call halt to our discussions now I'm afraid and I do want to say how particularly grateful we are to Professor Grayling for starting us off in exactly the way we hoped with a broad sweep of the possibilities of the public uses of philosophy. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>